It was great to worship with you and uh, for all those behind me. I just want to thank you for your leadership this morning and for your sacrifice uh, for us as a body uh, to lead us well. We're glad that you're here. If you're a guest here with us, welcome to Providence. If uh, you're over in the amphitheater or, uh, or at home uh, uh, online, uh, we, we say uh, we're glad that you are here um, as well. Uh, if you brought with you a Bible, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 1, uh, we're going to be in verses 43 to 51. We're going to finish up chapter 1 uh, today. And, um, and if you're new with us, uh, um, we've been uh, just walking through John this year. It's a series that's called Fully Alive, and it comes from John's statement of purpose of why he even wrote all the way back in John chapter 20 when he says, and I've written these things. I've compiled all of these stories and ideas, and I've limited down to this selection in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing you might have life, full life, fullness of life in his name. And so this is our intent. So we're up to John chapter 1, and uh, one of the things uh, that uh, we have done uh, is each month, if you're uh, new here with us, is that we uh, chose a small uh, uh, verse or two to actually memorize. And for February, our verse to memorize as a whole church family is John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And so, family faith, why don't you join me, okay? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And our hope, my hope for you this week, is that is that, that passage would serve like an anchor in your soul so that when this week, when you fail and when your enemy comes to you and says, I wonder if you have fallen out of the family or out of the good graces of God, that you can remind not only yourself, but your enemy that you are a child of God because you have believed and received Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we uh, come to your word and as we read it, we... um, We thank you that we have the Bible. We thank you so much for the gift of the scriptures that we can understand who you are. We can understand who we are. We can understand how we're to live in your world. We believe that you're the creator of all things, including ourselves, and that you're the one true God. Your word tells us very clearly, apart from you, there is no other. And so we gladly submit our lives to your authority over us. I pray that as we read this, God, that you would incline our heart to love Jesus. I pray for those here, maybe who do not know Christ as their Savior and Lord, and who are wondering, who is this Jesus? God, I pray today that you would help them to see, help them to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use this text to bring maturity to each one of us as individuals and to us as a body. I pray that you would root out sin in our own hearts. You would would dress us up, God, with the character of Christ. And so we, we look to you, our maker, the author of truth. Would you, by your spirit, teach us now. Give us belief, give us understanding, and give us courage to apply what we read here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text of ours, it begins with a very simple invitation. In fact, so simple that it requires only two words. Jesus walks up to a man and he says, follow me. Now, those two words are simple enough that you would think that we could not confuse those and to run down a wrong path in our understanding of what follow me means. And yet, 
When you consider the ways in which we, you and I are accustomed in our culture to following other people or uh, a great misunderstanding can arise in the hearts of people about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you just think about it just for a little bit, right, we follow Let's just say a sports team. What that means to us is we buy their merchandise and we watch their game. And when we can't watch their game, we look up the score online to see if they won and who scored how many points. And, 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 and so we follow sports teams. We, we follow our friends and their real-time self-expression through Twitter and Facebook and all these social media apps, right? So, so, so we're wondering, you know, like what's going on in their lives. And so we follow... a group of people. For some of us, it's hundreds and even thousands of friends, right? And, and we get to look every day at their musings and their meal plan and, and, and everything else that, that comes across their mind that says, you know what, everyone who, who, who wants to follow me should know this. And, 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 and so we follow people in, in these ways. We, we follow our favorite uh, actors and uh, uh, various artists, um, authors by buying their books or their movies by watching them and and by enjoying sort of their career development in fact for some of us there's a there's a certain artist or a certain certain um you know uh, where where if they write a new book as an author we're we're more inclined to go and buy their next book because we follow this author or this artist but what's interesting about in each of these cases is that in none of these cases do we expect or agree to deny ourselves and endure loss, risk, or pain in order to continue following them. But that's not the case with Jesus. See, there's 13 times where Jesus is going to tell someone in the four Gospels to follow me. And on three occasions, he makes sure to incorporate a specific series of phrases that culminates with follow me. It shows that there's teeth involved. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 is one of these occasions where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So my question that I want to seek to answer this morning in this text, John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51, is if self-denial, if risk and crosses are involved, then why would anyone choose willingly to follow this man? And so let's read what he says to us. Starting in verse 43, he says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Peter said to him, well, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. 
And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So if denial and crosses are part of the deal, why follow this man called Jesus? And the first reason is Jesus' presence is better than the absence of difficulty. Now, if you are here and if you've been perhaps going to church for a long period of time, and if your religious experience is just that, it's a religious experience, this is not true. If this whole thing to you is about rules and morality and ethics and, and uh, political persuasion and, and, um, and religion, then those things are not better than the absence of difficulty and pain. In fact, one of the ways that you know that you're literally walking down the right path is that when you go through difficulty, you do not resent your faith. And the reason is because your faith is not a religion, it's a person. And that person's on the path with you. And this is what happens. Jesus walks up to a man and it says he found Philip. Now, isn't that an interesting word? He didn't say he stumbled upon him or he happened upon going up the elevator with him. And hey, who are you? No, he says he went and found him. And he gives them a simple invitation. Two words, follow me. Follow me. I mean, can there be a more personal invitation in all the world than follow me? This last week for my son's 13th birthday, Seth and I went and, and, and he learned how to ski. It was a, it was a fantastic time together. And when we got to the top of the mountain, we looked over and all of a sudden his eyes get real big. I look over and I, I didn't say, all right, son, good luck. You know, I said, this is how we're going to do it. And now I want you to follow me. I'm going to go first and I want, you to, I want you to follow my path. You see, follow me conveys togetherness. It conveys brotherhood. It conveys uh, his presence in our life. We're, we're with someone. There's a me in follow me. And the me is Jesus Christ. But with Jesus, the invitation to follow him comes with teeth. You see, in Matthew chapter 4, we're told of the time when the author of the book that we're studying was called to follow Jesus. And for him and his brother, what it meant to follow Jesus was that he literally, he and his brother had to leave their dad and his fishing business, and they literally left his dad in the boat. They got up and left their nets, left the boat, left their dad, and followed Jesus. Personal sacrifice. You go several more chapters into Matthew and you get to Matthew chapter 19 and there we find a rich young ruler. And we're told that what it meant for him, the invitation to follow Jesus coincided with a call in his life to sell all of his possessions and to give all the money to the poor. And then we come to another passage which has three different men, three different ideas of, hey, I want to follow you. And you find some of the hardest sayings of Jesus in this passage. And I have it for you on the screen. It's Luke chapter 9, verses 57 
to 62. This is what it says. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You see what he's saying? You want to follow me? I don't have a bedroom, a bed or a pillow. You still want to follow me? To another, he said, follow me. But he said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, if you're like me, and maybe you're not, maybe it's just me. But I remember the first time that I read that in the second time and in the hundredth time is I felt inclined in my heart to try to shave off or explain away some of the rough edges in order to make following Jesus more appealing and more edible. I mean, if you brought a guest here and I just read that, you're probably going, this is the wrong Sunday. I knew I should. Next Sunday was the better Sunday. But next Sunday, the same Jesus is going to have said the same thing. You see, Jesus, it really is a remarkable thing. Jesus does not come up and he says, well, you know what, Philip, welcome to our small group. Here's the disciple packet and there's a mug in there. It has Jeremiah 29, 11 for it. It's going to encourage you. That's not what he does. No, what he says is you'll have no place to rest your head. And to another, he says, let the dead bury their own dead. And to another, he says, you put your hand at the plow. You can't look back at what you left. Now, there's no doubt as you read through the scriptures that Jesus made some remarkable promises of hope and provision and protection and peace for those who would walk and follow after him. There's no doubt that they're there. But what is very clear within the scriptures is that following Jesus is more than a happy relationship in a warm room with a wonderful man. The Bible tells us that the whole story of scripture is about a courageous king named Jesus Christ who created all things and then his people ran away. And this king is now coming into hostile territory to save the world from sin, from the grip of a ruthless enemy against insurmountable odds. And now this king, Jesus, after he was victorious, he's inviting people to follow him by believing in who he is, by trusting in what he did and what he accomplished, and by calling us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and call him our Lord and come under his command. So when you see these words, follow me within scripture, as we, as we continue to read through the gospels, there's typically two, two, two um, uh, things in the context that surrounds an invitation with the words, follow me. The first thing we normally see with the words, follow me, somewhere around it, is there's a demand 
to lay aside our competing captains. The Bible calls these idols. They're those things in our life that really call the shots. You see, Jesus was not creating rules for every single follower. He only told one person to sell everything you have and give it all to the poor. He only told one of these guys, let the dead bury their own dead. He only told one of these guys, you may not have a pillow if you follow me. And so we know that these are not rules for all Christians because he didn't give every single one of these rules to every single one who's come up to say, I'll follow you, or who he invited to say, follow me. No, what is happening in each one of these cases is Jesus, who can look beneath the surface, he's identifying the competing captain in that individual person's life, and he's saying, I'm calling for that because you cannot serve two masters. I am the Lord of your life. You call me as your Lord. I'm going to eliminate your competing captains. And this is what it means to follow me. You see, the reason is because you simply cannot plow a straight line looking backwards. When you put your hand to that plow and you start making a line walking with Jesus... You cannot look back at everything that you have sacrificed and everything that you're missing and in your heart feel like that you've made a trade down. Boy, this sure is hard. I sure wish I just could do that. I wish I could go back there. Jesus says, you know what? You cannot plow a straight line looking backwards. And this is what it means, he says. He says, firstly, I'm going to demand that you not only identify, but you're going to lay aside any competing captain in your life. And the second thing that we always find in the context surrounding Jesus' invitation to follow him is a question. And the question is this, do you prefer me over an easy path? You see, John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. You see, the words follow me, follow indicates there's a path. Me indicates there's a person. The path will be hard, but Jesus is saying, I'll be on that path. And so follow is never discontinued from the me. They're always connected. So the question that he's going to ask you, if you're going to follow him, Not only for those of you who are contemplating Christianity, but for those of us who have already trusted Christ and you have to make a decision this week about a particular area of your life. Are you going to follow Jesus in that? Whether it's your money or whether it's your sexuality or whether it's your marriage or whether it's your children, whatever it is, if you're going to follow Jesus, he's going to ask you this question. Do you prefer me, not religion, not morality, not ethics, me, the person, me? Do you have a relationship with me that you enjoy more than the absence of pain? And this is what he called Philip to. When he went up to Philip and he said, follow me, it was an invitation to be near him. It was not an invitation to be in a religion. It was not an invitation to be in a club. It was an invitation to be near the son of God and to sacrifice whatever was necessary to continue being near the son of God. Did you know that for Philip, 
history and tradition tells us that this Philip that started with two words, follow me, eventually hung on a cross just like Jesus because he would not recant his faith in Jesus Christ. This is not just a relationship in a warm room with a wonderful man. It may cost your life to follow this king. It did for Philip. But I want you to know something, and that's that nobody but Jesus is worthy enough to endure such a sacrifice. One day you're going to stand before the Lord. And whether you've learned this lesson and can answer this question positively on the earth, one day when you see Jesus Christ standing before you, you will know that day that he was worth whatever it took to be near him. And so I just want to encourage us by way of application, this first point as a church family is let us yield our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. When he says in his word, this is my will, Our only response is in view of the mercy of God to offer our body as a living sacrifice to God and say, all right, I may not get it, but your will be done. Well, the second reason why we should follow Christ in spite of the difficulty is because Jesus knows us inside and out. This should encourage us. It's also a little intimidating. What this means is that Jesus knows everything about you. There is not a day, there is not a word, and there is not a thought that he does not know about your life. And this is how we get to this point, right? Philip runs and he tells Nathaniel. See, the whole story is one man hearing, seeing Jesus, and running and telling someone else that they found Jesus. And he goes and he finds Nathanael and he says, guess what? We found the one of whom Moses and the prophets promised. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And Nathanael answers without any posturing or any pretense. And he simply says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anything good. Of course, the answer that he expects is a resounding no, but we know he's wrong because Jesus came out of Nazareth and Jesus is really good. And Nathaniel is going to have to eat his words really quickly. But he did. He said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, why would he say something like this? See, some people say, well, what he's really thinking here is that can the Messiah really come out of Nazareth? There's a passage in John chapter 7, verse 41 that we'll read about that it was sort of a common um, thought in the day that the Messiah would not come from any town up in this region called Galilee. And that's where Nazareth was. It's also where Cana was. We'll get there next week. Actually, not next week as the mission field, but the next week in John chapter 2, where he's going to turn water into wine. Well, Cana happened to be the hometown of Nathaniel. And Nathaniel from Cana lived two miles away from Nazareth. And so I believe what's happening, because he didn't say, can the Messiah come from Nazareth? He said, can anything come out of Nazareth? 
that maybe Nazareth has been the sort of this rival on the other side of the tracks for all of his life. All of us know what this is like. Some of you love a particular sports team and their crosstown rival. There's sort of just a disgust that rises in your heart and you say, can anything good come out of Durham? I mean, anything. <laughs> I mean, is it even possible for anything good to come out of Durham? Or is there anything, could anything good come out of Chapel Hill? I mean, lit- well, I'm sorry, that, that, was, that, was, that was painful for some. But, right? For some people, it's could anything good come out of this political party? Could anything good come out of that neighborhood or that city or that country? Could anything good come out of someone that doesn't look like me? You see, he's unveiling a prejudice that's deep within his own heart. His view of Nazareth and the people of Nazareth is so negative that he sweeps every citizen of Nazareth under the carpet including Jesus. And so Philip, Philip's learned really quick. Philip learns right here, you know, there's no reason for me to try to argue this point with you. So what he does is he quotes Jesus in verse 39. He says, look, just come and see. Just come and see him. In other words, evaluate him on the basis of his glory, not his group. Have an open mind about it. Just come and see him. So he does, and he starts walking, and all of a sudden, as Nathaniel approaches Jesus, Jesus looks up and he goes, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Literally, no hypocrisy, or truly, literally, no bait on the hook. He's all hook. There's no need to even put a worm on it. I'm sharp in my heart towards Nazareth, so my words are going to be sharp towards Nazareth. I don't need to hide it. I don't need to, 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 to bait you into thinking something. And this is what he was. He was absolutely honest, and Jesus knew what was in his heart. Without ever meeting him, he says, Now, there's an Israelite indeed who is truly honest. Well, this takes poor Nathaniel back just a little bit, and he goes, well, How do you know me? And all of a sudden, what Jesus says is this. He goes, you know what? Even though my eyes have never seen you, I saw you. You see, I saw you underneath a fig tree when Philip went and ran to find you. And all of a sudden, Philip knows that his prejudice was wrong. You see, Jesus is going to do this multiple times. It's remarkable. I mean, if you're sovereign and you know all things, it's amazing the kind of conversations you can have. You know, in John chapter 4, I, would start, I sort of mentioned the, the first part of the conversation with Jesus and the woman at the well where he says, hey, can I have a drink? And she says, oh, you really aren't supposed to ask me for a drink. And, and he says, well, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. And she said, but it's a deep well and you don't have a bucket. How, how are you going to get any water out of this? And He says, well, everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again, but you drink of the water that I give you. He says, it's going to well up to eternal life in your heart. All of a sudden, Jesus keeps going. And he says, hey, why don't you go call your husband? Bring him over here so I can meet him. 
Well, I don't, I don't have a husband. And all of a sudden he says, I know you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. Now we read that as though it's an old story. It's interesting. Can you imagine? I mean, what if you and I met right in the lobby? He says, hey, well, hey, hey, why don't you go call? And all of a sudden I dropped that bomb on you. And this is what he's doing with Nathaniel. He says, Nathaniel, not only do I know what's in your heart, I can see the tree and you. What he's saying is, Nathaniel, I know everything about you. I know every failure, every insecurity, every fear, every prejudice, every sin. And with that, his stereotype is broken. Clearly something good can come out of Nazareth. He changes his mind and all of a sudden he busts out in worship and he says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. In other words, you are the promised king from 2 Samuel 7. You are the promised son of God from Psalm chapter 2 that rules the world with justice, that forgives sin and that gives refuge to his people. This is what he says to him. He goes, you're the promised one we've been waiting on. He knows you inside and out. And so on the second point, two applications for us as a church family. The first is let's take comfort that Christ loves us as much as he knows us. Think about that for a second. We will never be in a situation where Jesus is not fully aware of what's going on in our life or in our heart. So there's no need to hide for nothing can be hidden. He knows where you were at last night. He knows what you're thinking about right now. And what's amazing is even though he knows it all, he loves us completely. Isn't that good news? That there is nothing that you can do to separate from his love. I think the second application comes with a little bit more sting, and that's let's repent of our sinful prejudice that hinders our mission. I want you to think at the core of what's in Nathaniel's heart when Jesus met him. It was literally something that was very, very unhealthy. You see, each and every one of us should hope in the day when structures rooted in racism and prejudice collapse. And the very first structure that Jesus demands to fall is our own heart. The seedbed of racism and prejudice. And so he wants us, he wants to unveil every prejudice, every seed of racism that's deep within our heart that causes us to look upon any person on the earth and conclude in any way that they are anything less than an image bearer of God. That God can do amazing things in them. You see, every one of us, in particular as believers, should look upon every people group in the entire world and every neighborhood in our city and see people who are created in the image of God with tremendous physical differences, cultural differences intended to magnify the creative glory and power of Jesus Christ himself. And that we as a people should see 
the differences in people and every color that will be surrounding the throne of God, Jesus Christ in heaven, and be worshiping him forever and ever and ever. You see, the flags in this room, they all represent peoples. And next week, when we have our missions festival, and we talk about our mission of going into our nearby neighborhoods and faraway nations, one of the obstacles is not just comfort. One of the obstacles is that we have already predetermined that certain people who are in certain groups are not worth my time. And so Jesus wants to root that out of his people by saying, if there is any people in the world that you look at and without knowing them or, 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 or spending any time with them and you conclude in your heart that they are less than me, they're not worth my time. Jesus is going to call us to repent. And in repentance, he's going to bring about a greater fullness of joy and love towards people that allows us to continue to walk on mission with him. You see, the divide could not have been any larger between man and God. But God did not despise us. He ran after us, just like he's called us to run after all of these people with the gospel. When we were more alien to him than anybody in the world is alien to us. Think about this question. Who is the people group? What do they look like? That when you think about them, you say or think if you don't have the courage to say it. Can anything good come out of there? And this is where Jesus is going to call us to repent. We want you to know, I just want to say this real quick, is that if you don't look like me or if you do, we're all glad you're here. The people that will be standing around the throne, will some of them may look like you, most of them will not. And that's a good thing. And so not only is Jesus' presence better than the absence of difficulty, and Jesus knows us inside and out, but the third reason why we should follow this man named Jesus Christ is because he's the only mediator between God and man. And how he gets there is pretty, it's pretty awesome. So Jesus says, like, I saw you under a fig tree. Is this why you believe? And then he says to him this, you're going to see greater things than this. And then he sums it up and he says, truly, truly. I say to you, you will see heaven open. And the angels of God, you're going to see them ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now let's do two things with this little verse and then we'll be done. The first is, what is the Son of Man? Well, throughout the Old Testament, there were various titles that were given to the promised one that would come. And one of them, from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, is this title, the Son of Man. I want to read it to you. It's on the screen, I believe. It says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And what Jesus is going to do 
remarkably, is nearly 80 times in the four Gospels, Jesus Christ is going to refer to himself as the Son of Man. He's going to claim that he is the the promised one, the Messiah, because he was. Now, why is Jesus saying this? Well, what Jesus does is he reaches back into the Old Testament and he borrows a story. It's a story of Jacob. Jacob's wandering around. He's tired. And all of a sudden, he wants to take a little, little nap. And so he gets a rock. He says, well, this would be a nice flat rock. I'll put my head on this rock. And all of a sudden, he falls asleep and he has a dream. And what we're told in the 28th chapter of Genesis, it says, and he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder staircase that was set up on the earth and the top of the ladder reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and he said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father and of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He's saying there will be one that is going to be born. The promised one is going to come from your genealogy. He says, behold, I'm going to do this. Now, what's the point? In this dream, what God was saying is this. He's saying, Jacob, I made you a promise. I made your forefathers a promise and I'm making your children a promise. And that is I'm going to fulfill my promise to give you a land to make you a nation. And there's going to be one, the promised one that's going to come from you. And it's surety of that. As you see in this dream, this ladder that's going from heaven to earth and angels are ascending and descending on it. What I'm saying to you is I'm promising that I'm going to be sending angels back and forth to protect you and to care for you and to help you and your people until this covenant is fulfilled. So when Jesus borrows the story, what he first does is he inserts himself as the ladder. In Jacob's dream, right, the ladder is what the angels were ascending and descending Now what he's saying is they're ascending and descending upon me, the son of man. What he's saying is I am the decisive connecting point between heaven and earth. You see in Jacob's dream, all this is going on. And what Jesus is saying is I'm the ladder by which God wants to minister to you. I am going to be the source. I am going to be that place where God and you as humanity can meet together and be reconciled. And just as the angels were coming up and down from heaven and earth on a ladder, so with my people, they will come up and down through me to minister to you. And so the reason that he's worth following providence is even though the path may be difficult, is that he's the only one who can bring you to God. He's the only one that can reconcile you to him. He's the only mediator between man and God. And he's the ladder on which God desires to meet you and to save you. And so 
two applications to close. First is let's run to Jesus and find grace. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ, we, look, we ask you, would you look to him today? Just come and see. Look. Look at him today. And the second is this, is that for us who have known Christ, I just want to encourage us, let's look to share Christ with someone this week. Let's look just like Philip ran and found Nathaniel and said, we found the one. Who is somebody this week that you can run and say, you know what? We found the one. It's not my job to convince you. It's my job to point you to the one. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that in our hearts, there's many hurdles that stand in the way of us obeying what we've read. There's many confusions even in our own heart. And there's so many obstacles even in our heart that would, that would, that would lead us to think that we're going to try to follow you half-heartedly. And God, I pray that you would use this text, Lord, just to confirm in each one of our hearts that the invitation to follow you is an, is an incredibly sweet invitation. But it's, an also, but it's also an invitation that requires all of our heart. And so, Lord, even as we continue to worship you by singing and by giving, I pray that we use this time, this quiet time, to help us reflect upon our competing captains, to help us reflect upon maybe even the prejudices, the deep ones that are in our heart that we may not even want other people to know about. And Father, we pray that you would help us to grow. So we love you and thank you for your kindness. And we pray this in Jesus' name.